You know, as uh, we were singing that last song, I just thought about this week. Um, we started reading The Mortification of Sin by John Owen. Just, just this week was just struck by the very, um, I don't know, frivolous or light nature in which we live this life we call a Christian life here in America. My own life, the lives of those around me, the church itself at large in America. And um, just uh, just began to think about what, what, what must it have been like to... Uh, to live in the first century, to, to live right after the death, resurrection, ascension of Christ, where people really understood that He is the very air that we breathe. He is the bread of life. He is everything. Without Him, I have no hope in this world. You know, because we don't live that. I don't live that way. I, I don't know many people that do live that way. And then I started studying through, looking through, not studying, but just reading through Acts. You know, you read things... Like Acts chapter 5, and we just kind of blow right through it. The men were arrested and taken before the Sanhedrin. They were tried, and there's, uh, there's this cry among the leaders to kill them before the, the, the way spreads, the, the new sect. Uh, Christianity spreads. And Gamaliel gave advice, and he said, You know, if, if it is God, you will not be able to overthrow these men. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And they said as they left the presence of the council, rejoicing, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching. And preaching Jesus Christ. Those are men who understand that He's the air that they breathed. That He's the bread that, that kept them alive. That, he, that they were desperate for Him. They were desperate. We use that word desperate uh, kind of lightly in our culture, I think. I don't know that we've ever been desperate <clears throat> in our lives. I just thought about you know the, uh, another instance where... And the Acts is full of these instances where Silas and Paul are imprisoned. And in prison, the Bible says in stocks, that means they were tied down hand and foot. They prayed and sang all night. And as the people heard it, they were being converted. The people in the jail were being converted. So how, they be, how do you know? Well, the earthquake happened and every, the chains all fell off everybody. And, and nobody moved. Everybody just stayed there. They were so overwhelmed, I believe, in the worship of these men, they they didn't want to leave. They just stayed there. Paul said, don't go anywhere. Stay here. You know, everybody's here. Then he tells the Philippian jailer, "Don't, don't kill yourself, buddy. We're all having a prayer meeting. Nobody wants to go home. We're all here. Count. Those are people that understand desperateness. They understand air. They understand bread. They understand Christ in a way that we just just don't understand. If you're doing the Sunday night study, it should have struck you weeks ago, but one comment made in chapter 7, 
Piper says, the American culture is the first in the history of man that will amuse itself to death. And that's what we're doing. If it's not entertaining, if it's not fun, if it's not light, if it carries any weight, if it's a study of Romans 8 verse 13 that's 250 pages long, an exposition of one verse, be killing sin or it will be killing you, John Owen says. This Make this your daily work. Mortify the flesh. He who does not mortify the flesh will die. He spent 250 pages getting his point across. And it's not the best seller this week. Does that shock you? I went in Lifeway. It's just been re-released. That's where I got it. It's three works. Mortification of sin, on temptation, and on indwelling sin. The three greatest works ever written outside the Scripture on what sin is. I, I commend it to you for your reading. It's in modern English. You can read it. It's not on the bestseller list at Lifeway. I was in there yesterday. Your best life now is... How to get the best out of life is there. How to be all that you can be is there. Nothing about mortifying the flesh. Nothing about the holiness of God. Nothing about this weighty way that people were willing to go be beat to death for. Nothing about that. And we wonder why our pulpits and our pews are full of cowards. Men and women who can't even talk to their neighbors much less someone who opposes them. I tell you, it's one thing to sing about being desperate for God. It's another thing to be desperate. We're not desperate. We're not entranced by His nature. Let's pray together. Father, We, we don't tremble at your name. Far from not speaking your name, now your name is nothing but a byword in our vocabulary. Something we speak as if it's frivolous and has no weight, no glory connected to it. We tremble to hear the name of an earthly leader. We walk about afraid of earthly men who have no power over our soul. We have no fear for you. It's no wonder, Lord, that your glory has been eclipsed in this generation and that a great darkness has fallen. Help our ignorance. As we approach passages like we will this morning in John 6, our ignorance keeps us from simply submitting to Your Word. We, we, we come up with all types of reasons and excuses that it can't be this way instead of just bowing the knee. God, help us. And we treat you as if you're frivolous, and yet you're the King of kings. We treat you as if your law matters not, and yet you're holy, and you require men to be holy, just as you are holy.
we act as if we have a lifetime to make these decisions and yet eternity hangs in the balance this morning. Eternity hangs in the balance. Heaven and hell hang in the balance. All of life hangs in the balance. For everyone listening, everything is on the line in these moments. And yet, God, we're more concerned with things that will go on after this time than we are in the things that will happen in this time. God, forgive us and strengthen us and give us the ability that we do not possess in ourselves to comprehend the depths and the power of Your Word. Thank You for attending to this service. And I pray You would speak to the heart that You would teach Your people and that You'd call them forth and save them. It's in Your name that we pray. Amen. The human response to the sovereignty of God is what we'll be looking at from John chapter 6, verses 41 through 47. You know, in the context of this passage in John chapter 6, we've seen the feeding of what could have been as many as 20,000 people on the countryside, a miracle, unsurpassed by any other miracle of welfare or feeding in all the world. Jesus then takes off his, takes his disciples away from the crowd. He goes away to pray. He sends them across the sea. Only He's sending them into the eye of a storm that's raging. He then walks on water, another miracle. Unknown, before or after Him. Walking on the water, He comes to them and He comforts them with the very presence of His name. I am. Do not be afraid. We talked about the storms that rage in our life and the conflict that we have and the fact that God sovereignly, sovereignly plans as an architect does for these things to happen in our life. He draws them out. He plans them every step and every move so that His mighty will might be accomplished and His glory might be extended to all the earth. This is just the context of what we're about to look at. Then there's a dispute between, or a discussion between he and the leaders of the Jews and the people that from, from Galilee who gathered around to hear him teach. They want him to provide another miracle, another sign. And Jesus points to their heart directly. He says, you didn't come here to believe in me. You came here to have your bellies fed again. Don't labor after the bread that fills your belly. Labor after the bread from heaven. Labor after that bread, the eternal bread that will never pass away. Jesus focuses them, and indeed He focuses us on the eternal, not those things which we are so much caught up with in day-to-day life, things around us, physical and tangible things. He turns our eyes to heaven. Jesus then really narrows down His audience, speaking to the leaders of the Jews now, if you see in verse 41. This name, the Jews, is a derogatory term used by John throughout his gospel. Anytime he wants to talk about the leaders, he calls them the Jews. The Jews gathered around and they began to grumble, murmur, talk against Christ in among themselves. Why were they talking about Him? Why were they so upset with Him over one issue? Verse 37, that's the issue. 
That's what they're upset about. That's what they're angered in their spirit about. All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast them out. I will raise them up on the last day, he says in verse 39. I will raise them up on the last day. This is what they're angry about. The sovereignty of God over the plight of man. This is unacceptable. They don't want this to be true. The pride inside their hearts causes them to reject this great truth of God and His sovereign plan, His sovereign ways. And it's no different for us today. Pride. Pride keeps people from believing in God's absolute sovereignty in salvation. People say it's a difficult doctrine. You know, John MacArthur had to talk about this. Some of you may have heard on the radio. It's question and answer time. He was asked, John, why don't people believe anymore in the things that you teach, in the sovereignty of God over salvation? Why don't they believe it anymore? Is it because it's too difficult for them to believe? He said it's not any more difficult than the other things in the Bible. It's no more complicated. He said, ex nihilo, creation, out of nothing. Something out of nothing. That's difficult to believe, isn't it? Hard to understand. Go get a scientist, sit him down and tell him to explain how something comes out of nothing. He can't do it. It's difficult. The Trinity, three in one, one in three. That's difficult. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around as finite creatures. Indeed, nobody has ever fully understand how that works. We believe it in faith, but it's difficult. It's not reasonable. Our minds cannot explain how one can be three and three can be one without violating their plurality or their unity. That's almost impossible, if not impossible, for the human mind to explain. Believe, yes, but explain, no. Jesus Christ in His union of spirit and flesh, 100% God and 100% man, that's impossible to explain as a human. To wrap our minds around, get the greatest mind in all the world. Sit him down and have him explain to you how somebody can be fully divine and fully human. He can't explain it. Chances are he will deny it. These are hard and difficult doctrines. And yet so many Christians, Orthodox, believing Christians accept these without any question. That's true. I believe it. They can't explain it. They don't know how it's true. They just know it's true. And yet, those same many times will look at a doctrine like sovereignty of God over salvation that God, before the foundation of the world, put together for Himself a bride and that He has gone out into the world and sought that bride and that He is saving that bride by His Son. By His own free grace, He does these things for His glory. The same that can accept difficult things like creation out of nothing, Trinity, and the union between God and man in Christ, they accept these things by faith and yet they come to this topic and they say, "Ah, I can't believe that, that's too hard. And you'll hear these same people who will talk all day long with you about creation against evolution. When you bring this topic up, they'll say, well, I just think we ought to leave those things alone. They're difficult. Doctrine divides. Christ unites. 
these kind of slogans start getting thrown around when this subject comes up. Why? Why? The only answer to that question is pride. This is the one doctrine that strikes at the pride of our heart. I am the captain of my own destiny. And nobody, not even God, will tell me where I'll spend eternity. That's my decision. And I'll make it. These are prideful statements. Prideful. God can't violate me. God can't violate me. I have a right. All these statements. Just think about them. How prideful. How hard-hearted they are. It's the same thing the Jews were doing in their hearts here as they began to grumble and complain. And it's the discussion down through the ages. If we look back through the church history, it's replete with this one discussion over and over and over again. Augustine debated Pelagius. Luther debated Erasmus. Calvin debated Arminius, Whitfield, and Wesley. And down in our day, in our, uh, in our heritage, Al Mohler and Paige Patterson, the two fathers of what is the Southern Baptist Convention, can't see eye to eye on this. And they, come to, they, they, they cannot agree over this one thing. Men that would agree over everything else in the Scripture in this one subject, they cannot reach agreement. Why? Well, there's pride. Look at what the Jews say in verse 1. The natural man rejects the doctrine of God's sovereignty in salvation. Just by his very nature, he rises up against it. Look what they do in verse 41. Jesus hears this in their heart. They grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Now, they've begun a discussion about what he said about being the bread that came down from heaven. Jesus is going to reveal the real subject of their problem in verse 44. Jesus is very clever in His teaching. He gets to the heart of the situation. They, they, they bring up location. He says He came down out of heaven. Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph from Galilee, the one we've known? How does He say then that He came down from heaven? See, they want to they get Jesus off track debating about whether He's from Galilee or whether He's from heaven. Whether He's the son of God or the son of Joseph. That's what they want to get him into a debate about. Jesus isn't going to take the bait. Jesus is going to keep driving at the problem that exists in their heart, this problem of pride and the rejection of God and His sovereignty over mankind. The word murmur there or grumble, it might be in your Bible. It's a, it's a, it's a descriptive term, a poetic term. It sounds like what you're doing. An automatopoeia, as it's called. Things that ding and dong, crash and bang. All of the things that make sense. That's what murmur is. When people murmur, you hear murmur from a distance. You know, you walk up on a crowd and there's this discussion going on. And it's... That's what's going on here in the crowd as Jesus teaches. Is that low-toned murmur. They're angry. And it's beginning to come out. They can't disguise it. They can't... Hold it back. It's breaking forth. The pride that's in their heart has brought them to the point that they would even openly question Jesus and come against Him. So they want to focus on His humanity. Look what they do. When a person wants to talk with you about the sovereignty of God, they're always going to go to humanity. And they're going to extol the greatness of humanity. He's a simple man. He comes from Galilee. He's the son of Joseph. See, they don't want to talk about the sovereignty of God with Him. They don't want to directly combat His teaching. 
Jesus is the greatest teacher who ever touched down on this earth. His teaching is bulletproof. There's nothing they can say in rebuttal of what he said in the previous paragraph. So they go to talking about him. And when people disagree over this topic or any topic, watch what happens. Somebody makes a case that is irrefutable. What happens? Character assassination. They can't disprove what you're saying, so they want to discredit you. That's where the Jewish leaders have gone. They can't refute his teaching. So now they want to say, well, what he's saying sounds good, but you know, he's just a carpenter's boy. He's from Galilee. What good ever came out of Galilee anyway? Well, they're from Galilee, many of them. But they'll stoop to any level to discredit Jesus so that no one will listen to him as he teaches about God and his sovereignty. He's a simple Galilean. Jesus rebukes them for this. Look what he says in verse 43. Do not grumble. Do not, that's a command. Do not grumble among yourselves. This is a strong rebuke from Christ. They're murmuring and grumbling and backbiting and talking about Him and trying to run down His very character and He just commands, Be quiet. Do not grumble against Me. The Jews attack Christ not because of His teaching, but because His teaching is consistent, they attack His character. And it's what happens in debate today over this very subject. Most of the debate, sadly, ends up centering around the, the, the character of those who teach, not the teaching itself. Now, I, I want to say to you, it happens on both sides of this debate of the sovereignty of God, whether God is sovereign in salvation or whether man willfully sets himself on the course of salvation. Both sides are, are guilty of character assassination. And it's a shame it really is because the issue itself, the issue itself should be discussed openly, should be taught from the pulpit, and should be talked about among the members of the churches. And I think if we would do that honestly, leaving personalities out and just talking about the Scripture, it would be clear the Spirit would bring unity and there would not be murmuring and backbiting, but acceptance and love and growth in the name of Christ. The natural man rejects God's sovereignty. He murmurs against it. He hates it. And he even stoops to the level of character assassination against the only perfect Son of God. Jesus then restates God's sovereignty and salvation more powerfully than He did in verse 37. Jesus' response is odd here. I just got to admit to you as a teacher. Have you ever taught something that wasn't received very well? Do you know what your reaction usually is? What? Down a little. You know, that you, you, you're teaching and, and it kind of gets roughed up a little bit. People seem like they're getting angry. And so to keep everybody happy, you back down. You give in. You soften it. Jesus does no such thing. Look, he says in verse 43, Do not grumble among yourselves. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You don't like the positive statement I made in verse 37? All. That's an open statement. All who the Father gives to me will come to me. And I will never cast them out. It's a positive statement of the issue, right? All that the Father gives me will come. 
and I'm not going to cast them out. They murmur against that statement, and so Jesus, instead of backing down, steps forward. Don't grumble about this among yourselves. And don't talk about me. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You don't like the positive statement of it? I'll give you the negative statement. All the Father has given me will come. You don't like that statement? I'll make it plain. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one. Jesus, far from stepping back from this issue, throws himself in the middle of this issue. And if you look, they gave him the perfect out. Why not talk about being from Galilee and being Joseph's son? That's what they wanted to talk about. He could have moved on, which is another thing we're guilty of, isn't it? Just don't dwell on it. You know, just throw it up there one time, just kind of ease it in in the sub point when everybody's asleep and they'll never know and everything will be happy and nobody will disagree and they'll keep you there forever. Draw a big salary and everything will be fat and happy. Jesus doesn't put it in the sub point. He brings it to the top. And when they don't like it, instead of putting it in the sub point of the sub notes when everybody's asleep, he gets more confrontational about it. So Jesus makes this the issue. No one can come to me, he says. No one can come unless the Father draws him. He restates his teaching there in verse 37. All that the Father has given to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast them out. Except in 44, he uses the negative language. And the Father is said to be drawing men to Christ. Drawing men. Do you see that? It's an interesting statement there. Elkuo is the word in the Greek. It's used. I want to show you the other examples of this verb being used in the New Testament. Okay? You write these down and look them up. In John 21, verse 11, when Jesus reappears to the disciples on the seashore, they're fishing. And Jesus says, cast your nets on the other side. And they cast their nets on the other side. And then they catch 153 fish. And the net is so heavy, the men on the boat can't get the net in. And so Peter joins them on their boat. And this is what John uh, John 21, verse 11 says. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net. That word hauled is the same word in our text, draw. Hauled it. Okay? He didn't coax the fish to get in the boat. Do you see my point? He didn't stand at the, and talk to the fish down there and say, please get in my boat. Please, won't you? My boat's better than your water. You'll like it up here. That's not what he did. He didn't sit back passively and say, I hope they decide to get in. He put his hands on that net and he hauled, to me, in in old football language, I mean, he put his back into it. He hauled it with all of his might into the boat and then onto the shore. That's the same word that's in our text here. No one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Same word. It's used in Acts chapter 16, verse 19. Okay? Peter, uh, Paul is in, in town square teaching. And uh, amazing, he makes people mad. Y'all ever known Paul to do something like that? They're angry at him. They're angry because he's cast out a demon in a little girl who's a soothsayer. And now she's worthless to her owners and they want to put Paul in prison for it. So this is what it says. 
they seized Paul and Silas and dragged. That's the same word as the word in our text, draw. Dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Dragged them. Now, do you get the picture that these men went over and said, Oh, Brother Paul, you've offended us. This little girl was making us a fortune and now she has no abilities because you've cast that evil spirit out of her. And although her welfare now is much better, ours is much worse. We'd like to put you on trial. Would you please follow us as we go into the marketplace to have a hearing? Is that the picture you get? Seized. Grabbed them by the nap of the neck and dragged them, not willingly, really, forced them into the marketplace. To be on trial, he dragged them. That's the picture here. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Same word, hauled, dragged, John 18, verse 10. Jesus is going under arrest, and Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it. He drew it. And this is the best one, you know, because this word in the ancient world, was used of a sword coming forth from a scabbard. Uh, swords aren't very popular now. we got a few men who might know what a sword's like, but it's a pretty tight fit in that cover, in the sheath, in the scabbard. It's a tight fit. It's not going to fall out on accident. Force must be put against that handle, and it must be pulled, drawn. Okay? It's not coming, jumping out. The man in battle puts his hand on the sword and pulls hard against it. He pulls it out. That's the picture here. Hauling, dragging, drawing. Leon Morris, the best commentator on John's Gospel, says this, There are no examples in the New Testament where the resistance of the object withstands the force exerted on it by the greater power. In other words, the object that's being hauled, dragged, or pulled, or drawn, in the New Testament, never is able to overcome the more powerful force acting on it. Not ever. You say, well, maybe they just didn't have another word. Oh, there's another word. Matter of fact, he had an assortment of words he could have used. But John chose this word because God in salvation draws you. Erasmus, when he saw this word, was so bothered by it. He's one of the greatest tech technicians of the Greek language ever. Fabulous, fabulous man. And he knew on this point he could not, when he wrote his book of free will, and, uh, and Luther's response to that is, is great. But on this point, Luther says, Erasmus hath lost his mind. <laughs> because Erasmus drew a new picture. Erasmus drew a picture not of drawing a sword from a sheath, but of an owner of a donkey holding carrots, enticing the donkey into the barn. Luther said it was unprecedented. That was never the meaning of this word. Rather, it was like the owner has laid his hand against the bridle and dragged the donkey into the stall of the barn. 
And he charged Erasmus with just academic fraud. He said, you know, Brother Erasmus, this is the meaning. You know it. Why wouldn't Erasmus accept this fact? Well, if you look into who Erasmus was, he was in the church, but he was not of the church. He was a scholastic. He was an academic. And though he was brilliant, he was a lost man. And he could not accept the fact that God would bring him to salvation. That God would draw him to salvation. He was okay as long as God was begging him with carrot in hand. He wasn't happy when God put his hand on the bridle and said, come in. But that's the picture John draws for us. Whether we like the picture or not like the picture is not the point. Whether we agree with this or don't agree with it really is not the point. The point is, this is what God's Word says. And our knee must bow. Our will must bend. And we must confess, He is the captain of the ship. And my life goes where He draws it. That's the picture being painted for us here. This drawing is always successful or Jesus is wrong in verse 37. Now, I want to show you why I make such a strong point about it being irresistible. No one can come to me unless the Father has sent him, me draws him. And you might say, well, maybe someone is being drawn that doesn't come. I want you to look back at 37. Compare the statements. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Do you hear the definiteness in Jesus' voice? And I will not lose any of them. In verse, look down in that same paragraph. And this is the will of Him who sent me, in verse 39, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. That's the picture. It is not that God is trying, sometimes succeeding, sometimes failing, Jesus says, when my Father draws a man, he wins every time. Far from making this hard for salvation, Jesus is saying, this is the beauty of salvation. God will not lose. Your hope is in God and God alone. Not how smart you are. Not how good looking you are. Not how talented you are. You're not the little kid on the playground and somebody's saying, I want that one because he looks good. I want this one because he's the best at this game. I want her because she's very popular and she'll make me look better. God's not playing that game. God is saying they're all despicable. They're all sinners. None of them deserve heaven. But I will, because I'm a gracious and loving Father, save these which I've chosen. That's the beautiful picture for the elect here. That's the picture Jesus wants you to wrap your arms around. That's the picture the Jews reject because of their pride. And that's the reason church leaders in our day reject this teaching. This is the only way to approach salvation. From a biblical standpoint, the words themselves stand alone. There's no way to refute it. And so we go to character assassination. We go to talk about whether the person is pleasing or unpleasing, whether they're from this place or that place, or what school did they study in, or who was their mentor, all of these kind of things. Did they ever sin in their life? That's not the point. We're all sinners. We've all fallen. Thank God He's gracious enough to save. God's saving grace is irresistible, or Jesus is a liar that simple. 
Notice he continually states that he will raise them up on the last day. Resistance, then, is finally overwhelmed by the grace of God. It's overwhelmed. It's overcome. A teaching of irresistible grace is not that someone doesn't hear the gospel and not accept it for years. That's not the teaching. That would probably be true of most of the people in here. We all heard the gospel presented many times probably in the United States, born in the Bible Belt, in the buckle of the Bible Belt at that, in Alabama or Mississippi or wherever you like to claim the buckle is. Some say Oklahoma, I guess. I don't, I don't know that I agree with that. But down here, where the Word of God is on every street corner and you passed five or six churches to get to this one this morning, you heard the gospel hundreds, maybe thousands of times, and you never accepted it. And people say, see, it's resistible. I heard it, and yet I didn't believe it. It's resistible. That's not, that's not the debate. The point is, it will not finally be resisted. And let me show you in this text, from these words, not a systematic theology book, why that's true. Look at verse 45 When Jesus says, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. And you say, see, I told you, preacher, everybody. You see, all. But that's a quotation from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 13 says, "All God God speaking, all your children, all your children shall be taught of the Lord. The all there." All of them shall be taught by God that Jesus quotes. All of them are God's children. All of them will be taught by God. The teaching of irresistible grace is that when the Spirit of God teaches you in your heart that you are a sinner, hopeless without Christ, and Christ is perfect, the redemption that is offered through Him is made clear and pressed on your heart to believe, you will believe it. You will believe it. You will, I'll say it this way. You will be willing to believe it. Because God teaches His children and His children hear His voice and they believe Him. Now, I'm not done. Look in verse 46 because you keep going. Jesus is going to get even more specific. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Verse 47, truly, truly. I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Everyone, he says in verse 45, who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Do you see that? You say, is it irresistible? I say, yes. Why? Because of who God is. When God teaches your heart that Jesus is the Messiah, you will believe it. Not based on your thinking ability, but based on God's teaching ability. You will believe it because He never fails. All that the Father gives to me will come to me and I'll never cast them out. I will raise them up on the last day. Well, Jesus, I thought you were Joseph's boy from that little Nazarene village there in Galilee. Don't grumble against me. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. As it is said in your own prophets... God taught all of them, and anyone who has heard and learned from God comes to me. Not everybody in Israel heard and learned from God, although they all would have heard and learned the Old Testament from their teachers. Not all of them would have heard and learned from God in their heart. 
For when they heard in their heart the words of God, believe in me, they would believe. They would believe. He will not lose them. They will be raised up on the last day. Jesus gives two proofs for God's sovereign salvation. One is God teaches those who believe. Everyone who believes does so on the basis of God's teaching. Everyone who believes already has eternal life. Look at verse 47. Truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. In the Greek, the construction is that they had eternal life when they believed. They already had eternal life. He had already made them alive so that they would believe in Him. So, how am I saved? Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. How do I believe? God will teach you in your heart. So therefore, it's not based on your will nor on the ability of your teacher. It is based on the ability and the will of God. That's what gives us hope and salvation. What if the guy who shared the piece of the gospel with me that I heard when I got saved, what if he, what if he didn't know it all? Maybe I don't know enough to be saved. Listen, it doesn't matter how capable your teacher was. It matters how capable the Holy Spirit is. He is perfect in converting the soul. He's perfect. Well, preacher, I never heard all these things you're saying today. And I believe you're right. Because the Word of God was taken into your heart by the Holy Spirit and you believed it. Because He called you, He drew you, He pulled you, He hauled you, He dragged you. This is a picture of salvation. So for the lost man, you say, well, what do I do? What do I do? On the authority of God's Word, I say to you, believe. Believe. That's it. There's nothing left for you to do. Not walk an aisle, not sign a card, not pray a prayer, not... Go to church more, not be a better person, give more money. None of that stuff is what you need to do right now. If you're lost here today and you hear me saying, Christ is the only way to salvation, believe that and you will be saved. You will be saved. For the saved person, what do I do with a message like this? Two things I want you to do. One, praise God that you're saved. It it wasn't based on you. Thank Him. If you don't have gratitude leaving a service to where we talk about this, you'll never have gratitude. You're just not a gracious person. Secondly, what should I do if I'm a believer? Preach this gospel to every creature under the sky. Why? Because it doesn't depend on how good you are at preaching it. Do you see the freedom in this doctrine? You may be the absolute worst evangelist in all the world. God is perfect at converting the soul. Preach the gospel. You say, well, if they're going to get saved, why preach it? This afternoon, read Romans 10, 9 through 17. Because we always read 9 and 10 and 13 and we stop. 17 is key. It'll tell you why we preach. 
Because God has commissioned preaching as the method by which his gospel will go to that unconverted soul and then he will convert it. He has ordained not only the end, but the means to the end. Lost man, believe. Saved man, thank God and get busy telling other people about him and about his salvation because there are men and women. This is the third thing for you. You will be successful. You will be successful. Say, well, how do you know I'm going to be successful? I ain't even done it yet. Because there are lost men who will be saved, and that's a guarantee. There are people out there right now, unconverted, who tomorrow will be converted based on the power of God, not based on their ability to understand or your ability to teach. Do you see how beautiful this really is? Oh, God, you saved me. I was worthless, and now you've made me worthy through Jesus Christ. Now I'll tell others, but what if I'm not good at it? It doesn't matter, son. I'm good, and I'm perfect. Well, well, what if nobody believes? They will believe. I've got children in the world yet to come to me, and you're going to be part of what brings them to me. We serve a gracious God, a good God. This is the God we serve. This is the God we love. This is the God we adore. This is the God that is the air we breathe and the bread that we eat. This is Him. Believe in Him and preach Him to every creature under the earth. And men and women will be saved. Let's pray. Father, there's nothing tried about Your Word. It is perfect. It's perfect in converting the soul. It is perfect in cheering the heart of the believer. It's perfect in giving courage so that we might stand and preach Your Word beautiful message whether there's they drag us to prison or beat us or ridicule us on the street corner we can preach with confidence knowing that you will save the lost oh god thank you for this great salvation jesus we praise you as our savior and the captain of our ship without you we would be hopeless amen thank you for being with us